Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling Are you interested in getting the book you just published reviewed? Writing some piece of literature and need help getting it out there and promoted? Interested in sharing what piece of literature we should cover next? Well, fret not. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Patreon, where your contribution can help in growing this podcast. For as low as $3 a month, a price less than a good, and I mean good, cup of coffee, you can help contribute to the growth of this podcast. Every bit helps. But as always, it is not necessary to do so, but will be appreciated. Find the Patreon link on our website, on our social media accounts, or email us and we can send it to you. Thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at alllowercaseinthegreathanstent at gmail.com. That is, inthegreathanstent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening, and now, on with the show. In the Great Khan's Tent is now a year old. We would like to firstly thank all of our listeners and supporters for accompanying us on our missions so far and hope that you are pleased by our offerings that we strive to provide you. Please stick around and support us as we reach new and better heights of providing programming that you want while bringing you the same educational, informative, and entertaining content that we are known for. Without all of you, this would not have been possible. Thank you. In the second of our one-year specials, in the first part, we examined the early history of the Abbasid Caliphate and examined the perception of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, especially regarding who would be his successor and why his perceptions within the story cycle of the porter and of the three apples differ so widely. In the second part, we continue the examination of possible South Asian fonts of inspiration for the 1001 Nights. By examining the last two of the four inspirations indicated by Robert Irwin in his book The Arabian Nights A Companion, the Katha Sarit Saghara and the Sukha Saptati. As always, a reading list is provided on our website. We hope that you enjoy this episode and continue to listen to us. Thank you. Greeting listeners, and thank you for joining us today to celebrate the one-year anniversary of In the Great Khan's Tent, as well as the release of our 20th episode of In the Great Khan's Tent, comprehensive reading of the 1001 Nights, also commonly referred to as the Arabian Nights. And what a great year and 20 episodes it has been. We began this podcast as a means to bring to light the oft-ignored, overlooked, and forgotten pieces of literature, folk literature, and history from the regions of the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, North Africa, Mongolia, and the colonized Russian Far East. 
The fact that we have reached both 20 episodes and are a year older highlights the welcoming attitude of our listeners and fans have to our mission, and we look forward to serving you with the same quality of educational, thoughtful, insightful, and entertaining product that we have put out since the start of our journey. In the 20 episodes so far, covering the 1001 nights, we have encountered a variety of people from all spectrums of life, from the poor but wise fisherman who fooled a jinn, to our rich but foolish prince who gave everything up due to his curiosity, to brave sultans outsmarting and defeating their foes, to merchants traveling the Near East to ply their wares, and encountering love and loss. We have also met with women who are the center and the cause of some of the stories, such as magicians weaving their spells which entrap their hapless victims, to cunning and courageous princesses versed in magic, fighting for what is right in the world. We have met historical characters as well, who populated the time period some of these tales were written in, such as Jafar al-Barmaki, the helpless vizier, always trying to get out of difficult spots his patron puts him in, and Harun al-Rashid, the quintessential khalif, who is as wise as he is vicious. Above all, we have encountered the brave Shehrazad, the daughter of the vizier, who put her own life on the line to stop the killing rampage by the Shehanshah and to bring peace into the realm. We thank you for continuing to listen to us for the whole year and helping us continue our journey, and I hope that you will continue to join us in our adventure through many forms of folk literature, literature and history that we will inevitably encounter. Continuing on as before, our second special one-year anniversary episode of In the Great Khan's Tent seeks to examine both the history and the inspirations that led to the creation of the 1001 Nights. In part one of our historical examination, we look at the role that Harun al-Rashid plays within the tales we have encountered so far. In examining this history, we can attempt to encapsulate a rough timeline of when certain tales may have been both created and disseminated, or later written down. As we have seen from the recently concluded story cycle, The Three Apples, Harun al-Rashid is perceived in an extremely different manner than that found in the story cycle of the porter. Why these different interpretations exist in the 1001 night shall be the focus of this part by looking at historical facts. This may be due to how the storyteller wanted to present Harun al-Rashid, or more likely is the work of the translator who grouped the stories together. After completing our little historical sojourn, we will continue where we had left off previously in the second special episode by continuing to focus on the two remaining subcontinent inspirations for the 1001 Nights. Part 1. The Early Abbasid Caliphate and Harun al-Rashid and his Changing Perceptions We have so far encountered two very different character interpretations of the Abbasid Khalif Harun al-Rashid 763-809 CE. 
The first depiction that we encountered is presented in the long story cycle of the porter, the three dervishes, and the three ladies of Baghdad, which we began in episode 6 and reached its conclusion in episode 14. Harun al-Rashid once again appears at the beginning of the story cycle of The Three Apples, which begins in episode 14 and reaches its conclusion in episode 18. In the first cycle of stories, that is, the porter, the three dervishes, and the three ladies of Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid is presented as someone who is calm, collected, but blind to how his son, Abu Musa Muhammad ibn Harun al-Rashid, also known as Al-Amin, the future Khalifa, from 809 CE to 813 CE, acts. The other characterization of Harun al-Rashid is that which is presented in the story cycle, The Three Apples, where he is a vengeful, cruel khalif, who at every turn seeks to have Jafar al-Barmaki, his helpless vizier, executed alongside his entire family for deeds he did not commit, but happened nonetheless in the khalif's capital. It is my scholarly opinion that these two different characterizations of Harun al-Rashid shines a light on the historical events of the period when these stories may have been composed, how they subsequently spread, and may indicate their final incorporation into the 1001 Nights. To start with, I think it would behoove us to attempt to understand his regency by examining how he is encountered historically within this period. Here I will note that I do not describe Harun al-Rashid as a monarch, but rather as his title dictates. In the Islamic political context of the period, he was regarded as the vice regent or as a divinely connected representative of Allah given the right to rule as a mercy to mankind. Here, I believe, is the perfect time to provide a very brief summary of the rise of the Abbasid Caliphate, as it will both provide certain context for the historical background of the 1001 Nights and will be a reoccurring theme in these special episodes. There is a reading list provided where you can learn more, if you like, on our website. The Abbasid Caliphate, 750 CE to 1258 CE, was the third caliphate to rise after the death of the Prophet Muhammad and was so named for the family who became caliphs as they were descendants of Muhammad's uncle Abbas ibn Abdul al-Muttalib, 566-653 CE. The rise came after a rebellion against the Caliphate of the Umayyads, 661-750 CE, in the beginning of 749 CE, particularly against the then Khalif Marwan II, 691-6th of August, 750 CE. Although there are socio-economic and political motivations for this rebellion, the most important factor was the struggle between the Muslims of Arab descent and those of non-Arab descent. The Umayyad Caliphate was an Arab-centric state focused entirely on those Muslims who were Arab, with the resulting non-Arab Muslims being subject to various injustices, such as being pushed to marginal roles within society, not allowed to live in what were termed garrison cities, which were fortresses that housed both bureaucracy and military separate from the rest of the population, 
and could neither hold officer positions within the military nor work for the government. Most important of all, these non-Arab Muslims who had converted for a multitude of reasons still had to pay the jizya tax for non-Muslims. This treatment was further compounded by the alarm at which the Umayyad nobility began to view the non-Arab Muslims as a threat to their own position simply for the fact that since they were converting, there would be an increase in the demand to stop paying the jizya tax since they were now Muslims, causing irreparable financial harm to the Khalifate. The reasons noted, in my scholarly opinion, were the significant issues non-Arab Muslims had with the Umayyad Khalifate, although there were a myriad of other significant reasons as well. In the 740 CE, a person called Abu Muslim Abdul al-Rahman ibn Muslim al-Khurasani, 718 or 719 to 755 CE, a Persian notable who at this time was based in Kufa in Iraq, had begun to integrate himself with the cause of a member of the house of the Prophet wasallam. In an implicit reference to the Abbasids, this movement in support of the Abbasids had begun in 719 CE when groups known as the Hashimiyah began their mission to seek support in Khurasan for a member of the house of the Prophet who would be acceptable to everyone and replace the clearly ineffective and biased rule of the Mayyads. Khurasan was a geographical location with several important Central Asian cities such as Herat and Balkh and was considered the center of power for many pre-Islamic and Islamic dynasties. It is presently divided between the modern-day nation-states of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and parts of Pakistan. Abu Muslim was introduced to the Abbasid head of the period, Imam Ibrahim in Mecca, and by 746 CE, he had gained the leadership of the Hashemiyah in Khorasan. Abu Muslim continued to build up an underground resistance movement that had already spread its roots firmly in Khorasan and was spreading to the rest of the eastern Islamic lands. It should be noted that the scholar G.R. Hotting makes the assertion, which I firmly agree with, that the Umayyad Khalifate did know about the growing resentment and threat of rebellion in Khorasan. However, it was besieged on all sides by rebellions of various sorts, one after another, and they did not have the manpower available at the moment to deal with this possible rebellion, when other active rebellions were already taking place. By 747 CE, Abu Muslim began his open revolt against the Umayyad Khalifate using the Black Banner as a standard, with 10,000 soldiers under his command. He firstly targeted the city of Merv, the ruins of which are in present-day Turkmenistan, and was successful in occupying the city on the 14th of February, 748 CE. By 749 CE, they had fought and eliminated all the Umayyad sent responses to the rebellion in the eastern Islamic lands, securing it for the Abbasids. And within the same year, the Abbasid army was in Iraq. Its presence resulted in the fermentation of open rebellion in all 
of the major cities of Iraq, and on the 28th of November 749 CE, As-Safa, the great-grandson of Al-Abbas and the first Abbasid Khalif, began his rule. In a decisive battle on the 16th of January 750 CE, the Umayyad Khalif Marwan II was defeated at the Battle of the Zab, and the end of the Umayyad Khalifate had come. The Abbasid Caliphate, unlike the Umayyad Caliphate, although still Arab in nature, was open to non-Arabic Muslims and increasingly saw a mixture of both Arab and Persian characteristics flourishing in this period. They increasingly depended on Persian bureaucrats for governing the territories of the Caliphate, broadly adopting Persian customs and manners, and began the flourishing of artists and scholars, which ushered in an era that is commonly referred to as the Golden Age of Islam, and one which led to the creation of literature such as the 1001 Nights. It is my belief it was during the regency of Harun al-Rashid that the concept at least of the story cycle of the porter, the three dervishes, and the three ladies of Baghdad might have been created and disseminated, since it clearly does not reflect the political turbulation after 803 CE, and I would make the assertion that it takes place at or around the year 796 CE, as there are historical records that showcase that Harun al-Rashid was not predisposed to eliminating the Barbakid family up until this point. There is a historical precedent for making this assumption. Firstly, we know that Harun al-Rashid in 803 CE did kill Jafar al-Barmanki and his entire family, and he himself had died in 809 CE in Tus, a city in present-day Iran near Mashhad. In this period, historically, this is reflected by his contentment to let the Barmakid family take charge of the Caliphate both to help him deal with the day-to-day administration of the city and the caliphate, especially while he was on the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca that is suggested to all Muslims who can afford it. There are two instances where this happened, the first undertaken, 796 CE, and another pilgrimage, this time taking place in December of 802 CE. Secondly, Harun al-Rashid is not shown flip-flopping between bouts of anger and making death threats to his companion and trusted vizier. Instead, he acts in a calm manner, is collected, presents adequate judgments, and overall presents himself as the quintessential just ruler, giving out verdicts and listening to everyone's stories and passing out what we could call good judgments, where everyone is pleased with the lot they received. The only caveat we find to his character, which may also indicate when this tale was composed, spread, or heard, was the presence of his son Al-Amin and his lack of judgment on him, as he was quintessentially the instigator of this story cycle. Of course, it should be noted that this is a piece of folk literature. If we make the assumption that the composition and distribution of the story was around 796 CE, Al-Amin would not have really been of marriage age, nor would he be considered an adult, being 10 in 796 CE. However, if we take the date of composition as being after 796 CE, then he would have been of marriageable age, and the storyteller would have been able to capture his attitude quite proficiently. 
Lastly, it should be noted that the strongest evidence for the year later than 796 CE would be the absence of his other son, Al-Mamun, his eventual successor, who is not mentioned in this story cycle. This may point to his being away from the capital, Baghdad, and in Khorasan, where he was sent to both gain an education and to gain experience in administration. His change and irrational attitude that was showcased in the story cycle of the three apples is delivered in sharp contrast. This, I would argue, clearly points to the composition of this story cycle, or at least it being written down, beginning sometime after the execution of the Barmachids in 803 CE, and ending sometime after the end of the war between brothers 811 to 813 CE, with the death of Al-Amin and the ascension of Al-Bemun as a new Abbasid Khalif in 813 CE. By placing it within this time frame, it would both encapsulate the surprising turn of Harun al-Rashid's characterization after his return from the Hajj in 802 CE and his struggle with ensuring the succession of Al-Amin over his brother Al-Mamun. The fact that these story cycles find themselves next to each other, keeping in mind that this may have been the translator's doing rather than an organic placement, may also serve to highlight that the storyteller and or writer would have wanted his audience to understand the struggles of leadership and how even the most powerful person could easily turn into a monster. Although we have talked in generalities so far about the motivations for the storyteller and or writer to depict Harun al-Rashid in this manner, the question remains of why was this depiction necessary? For that, we have to turn to a historian who had access to and knowledge of people who lived in the time period this took place in and had experienced it for themselves. He is known as Al-Tabari. Abu Jafar Muhammad ibn Yazid Al-Tabari, 839-923 CE, was a historian and an Islamic scholar. Born in 839 CE in Amol, Tabaristan, Presently in modern-day Iran, he arrived in Baghdad around 856 to 857 CE to continue his education. He was in Baghdad when he began work on his monumental Arabic historical chronicle, the Tarikh al-Rusul wal-Mulk, or the history of the prophets and kings, a chronicle spanning complete eras, beginning from the moment of the creation of the world and continuing on until the year 915 CE. He therefore inevitably covers the Abbasid Caliphate and in particular the era that we are concerned with. This surviving chronicle is important for the simple fact that it references, provides quotes, references people who were present and otherwise compiles them into a format which makes it very readable and contains texts which have been lost over the years and are no longer extant. There have been a number of translations of this tremendous work, but the best, in my opinion, is a 39-volume translation published by the State University of New York Press, which began in 1985 and published the last volume in 2007. The History of the Prophets and Kings contains two volumes which are of interest to us. These two volumes, volumes 30, spanning the reign of Harun al-Rashid, titled The Abbasid Khalifa in Equilibrium, and volume 31, spanning the reign of Al-Amin, 
and the subsequent war between brothers in 811 to 813 CE directly provide evidence which might explain why Harun al-Rashid had received such a characterization. The people who he refers to or includes their work in his were more often than not eyewitnesses to the ongoing developments and sometimes were those who were closer to the Abbasid Caliphs. Al-Tabari in volume 30 clearly indicates that in the year 792 CE, Al-Fadl ibn Yahya ibn Khalid the Barmakid and father of Jafar al-Barmaki was approached by one Isa ibn Jafar who had told him that he wanted him to work to convince all of the notables, the relatives and the family members of the Abbasid tribe to support the succession claim of Al-Amin who was around five years old at the time. This event showcases that from the beginning the Barmakids were involved in the power struggles of this time period and that they played a significant role in setting up the expectations of who would be successor. This came at a time, as Al-Tabri notes, where there was no clear succession plan in the case of Harun al-Rashid's death, and several members of the Abbasid tribe had indicated that they would want to be the next Khalif. Al-Fadl, writes Al-Tabari, readily promised Isa ibn Jafar to work towards that goal. It is apparent, however, that whatever mechanism or courtly intrigues had taken place, they were largely unsuccessful, as many rightly pointed out that they could not give their allegiance to a child. The translator C.E. Bosworth even notes that Harun al-Rashid's great-great-uncle Abdul al-Samad ibn Ali tried to rally the people to al-Amin stating that, O people, don't let his tender age delude you, for this is indeed the blessed tree whose roots are vigorously growing and whose branches stretch up to the heavens. Whatever the case might have been, Al-Fadl was unsuccessful in carrying out this decree. Whether Harun al-Rashid knew about it or not is unknown, though it could not have escaped his notice of the intrigues being played by both his family and his vizier. Regardless, some time later Al-Fadl had left Baghdad to become the governor of Khorasan, presumably leaving his sons or someone in the Barmakhid family to take over from him. Al-Tabri here notes that once Al-Fadl had reached Khurasan, he began distributing sums of money, how much is unknown, but he must have spent large sums, since both the citizens were given money and the soldiers in the province were paid successive allotments of pay. This buying off of the citizenry and the soldiers inclined both groups to be receptive to Al-Fadl, who used this moment to proclaim Al-Amin as the successor to which they readily agreed. The question certainly arises if Al-Fadl had arranged both this transfer and his monetary bribes in order to win the support of Khorasan, or if this was just a happy circumstance that allowed him to proceed with his promise. Al-Tabari is characteristically silent on the matter, noting that Al-Fadl had been transferred to Khorasan, which allowed him to declare Al-Amin as the successor. He notes that once Harun al-Rashid 
had heard of Khorasan proclaiming Al-Amin as heir, he readily agreed and informed the provincial governors and the Abbasid tribe. This seems, at least to my own scholarly opinion, too convenient of an incident to happen surreptitiously, but seemed to be some sort of game of intrigue played by both Harun al-Rashid and al-Fadl to make Al-Amin the heir. As history would unfold, however, it seemed that Al-Amin's young age had hidden what was both desirable and undesirable in the Khalif. As he would get older, there would be a significant shift in the attitudes of both the Barmakids, which would lead them to their downfall, and to Harun al-Rashid, who clearly knew that there would be issues arising between both Al-Amin and Al-Mamun. South Asian Inspiration for the 1001 Nights In our episode in The Great Khan's Tent, episode 10, special episode 2, we began looking at two of the four distinct pieces of literature which Robert Irwin in his work, The Arabian Nights, a companion, pointed to as the potential inspiration for the foundation of the 1001 Nights. The first was the Jataka, a 2nd century CE Buddhist collection of 547 to 550 tales, which focuses on the rebirth and reincarnation of Gautama Buddha. The second was the Panchan Tantra, a 4th century CE collection of Hindu interrelated animal fables. In this section, we will continue with the other two potential inspirations for the 1001 Nights, the Katha Sarit Sagara, Sukha Saptati. The Katha Sarit Sagara. The Katha Sarit Sagara, Oceans of the Streams of Stories, is a collection of Sanskrit tales written by Soma Dev Bhatta, an 11th century Kashmiri poet. As in the case with the Jataka and the Panchan Tantra, any substantial information about the author, Soma Deva, is not available. What we know is that he was present at the court of King Ananta of Kashmir. The work was compiled for the amusement of the queen Suryavati and that it was finished sometime between 1063 to 1081 CE. It is important to distinguish that this is a later compilation of tales and fables written clearly in a period when the formation of the core of the 1001 Nights had already begun to take shape. Recall that in the Great Khan's Tent Episode 5, Special Episode 1, we discussed a 9th century fragment of the 1001 Nights, which indicated that the corpus of the 1001 Nights had already begun to take shape in some format. Clearly, this is not to say that the transformation of certain tales within the Katha Sarit Saghara could not have been carried over in what we could term as the Islamic world. However, the history of the work itself does not point to its transference to the Abbasid Khalifate. The Katha Sarit Saghara seems to have been completely ignored for a number of centuries, and the exact reason is not known. However, it seems to have found some light 
when it was translated into Persian during the 15th century and given the title Bahar al-Asmar or the Ocean of Stories in keeping with the original title. The translation was conducted by an anonymous scholar during the reign of Zain al-Abidin, ruled 1416 or 1420 to 1470 CE of the Shahmir dynasty of Kashmir. Unfortunately, this text does not seem to have survived the ravages of time and is only noted in a Sanskrit work titled Raha Tarangini by Siriwara sometime in 1450 or 1505 CE. This Sanskrit work was ignored again until the 16th century. Scholars are once again acquainted with a Persian translation of the Katha Sarit Sagara when in 1590 CE the Mughal Empire during the reign of Abu Fadl Jalaluddin Muhammad Akbar ruled from 1556 to 1605 CE when a translation was once again commissioned, presumably by either members of Akbar's court or Akbar himself from Mustafa Khalikdad Abbasi who had been a translator of other works as well. Abbasi translated the work and titled it Daryayi Asmar or River of Stories in an effort to distinguish it from the earlier translation. Interesting to note is that the prior translation is evidently extant during this period as Abbasi notes that the translation had included Arabic expressions. His new translation sought to make it more readable. Although this translation is excellent, it is in pieces, and only eight out of the original 18 translated chapters are in existence currently. So the question that is raised by what I have described so far is one which I have to ask out of my own scholarly interest. Why does Irwin point to the Katha Sarit Saghara as being one of the inspirations of the 1001 Nights? We know that it was composed at a time period when at least the core of the 1001 Nights was already seemingly in existence and that the path that this work took, even though by the 11th century the Abbasid Caliphate was in somewhat of a stagnant period and the translation movement which had spurred on the various efforts to translate texts from the original language into Arabic had long ended. By all accounts, it should not be seriously considered as one of the sources of inspiration. Irwin, however, seemingly addresses this issue by pointing out that the Katha Sarit Saghara, much like the Panchan Tantra, was a compilation of earlier tales and that the Panchan Tantra was itself incorporated into the Katha Sarit Saghara. This earlier composition, which had spawned the Katha Sarit Saghara, was called the Birhat Katha, the great tale written in Sanskrit by a person called Gunadiya. Once again, there is little information about the author and surprisingly little about this corpus of literature itself, since it was written in a poorly understood language known as Paisaki, which scholars know little about except for that it is an Indo-Aryan language which flourished sometime during the 5th century BCE in the subcontinent. All texts that are alluded to be written in this language, however, originate seemingly sometime during the 3rd to the 11th century CE. The work itself does not survive, which as mentioned before is not unique for Sanskrit texts. 
but is found included in the Katha Sarit Saghara. Although scholars do understand that the Birhat Katha was included in the Katha Sarit Saghara, there is no method that they can devise to identify which tale belonged to the Birhat Katha. Scholars identify that there are at least five different works which contain some elements of the Birhat Katha, but since all five are quite different in both content and the form they are found in, reconstruction is all but futile. Erwin therefore posits that since the Katha Sarit Saghara included elements from the Birhat Katha and the earlier mentioned Pancha Tantra, it must therefore be reasonable to postulate that this work must have somehow found its way into Baghdad or into the hands of storytellers who incorporated it into the 1001 Nights. To further this argument, Erwin points to another story which the Katha Sarit Saghara incorporated into its corpus, the Vitala Pancha Vinsati, or the 25 Tales of a Vampire, where the character of the Vatala, or vampire, plays a central role, much like the role played by Sherezad, where the vampire in this story uses the same framework as that of the 1001 Nights, in this case to save the king from the beggar who wanted to take his throne. Furthermore, this collection of tales also contains a starter story which is familiar to many texts, one where there is a merchant who can understand the language of animals. However, I would have to disagree with the entire premise on two accounts. First, and the most importantly as I see it in my scholarly opinion, is that there is no evidence that the Katha Sarit Saghara or the Birhat Katha had ever found an audience outside of the subcontinent, and I would even argue that within the subcontinent there would have been a limited audience. The reason for this is simple. The Birhat Katha, as mentioned before, was written in such a unique language that even at the time it was written, it was referred to as the language that was spoken by the dead. There is limited possibility that this text, composed in a dead language, would somehow find its way into the Abbasid Khalifate, either through textual format or by merchants who had somehow listened to it and had understood what this dead language was saying. Furthermore, the Katha Sarit Saghara is seemingly ignored by all outside of Kashmir when it was composed in the 11th century. It was only translated in the 15th and 16th century into Persian. The only element of this text that could have been used as inspiration for the 1001 Nights, as mentioned before, was the Panchan Tantra. However, this text is not unique to the Katha Sarit Saghara, thereby even further limiting the influence, if any, it could have. If we look at the Vetala Pancha Vin Sati, we can draw no conclusion as to its influence on the 1001 Nights, except for the basic structure of storytelling that Sherhezad uses. Lastly, concerning the framing story of a merchant who understands animals, as mentioned in special episode 2, the Jataka already had contained the framing story of a merchant who is able to understand animals, thus indicating that this method of framing a compilation of tales was not solely unique to the Katha Sarit Saghara, and may possibly, in fact, be a common trope within the subcontinent literary field.
In the end, therefore, although Irwin points to the Katha Saritsaghara as one of the possible influences, the evidence that I have presented here seems to clearly point to the work, while worthy of being studied as a standalone piece of literature and is unique for the time period, cannot have been an influence to the 1001 Nights. Sukha Saptati The last inspiration from the subcontinent for the 1001 Nights, as indicated by Irwin, is the Sukha Saptati, the 70 Tales of the Parrot. This is once again, much like the other pieces of literature mentioned so far, a collection of stories that were written in Sanskrit and composed in the 12th century CE, although the surviving manuscripts themselves date to the 15th century CE. Unlike the other pieces of literature we have examined so far, the Sukha Saptati is interesting for the fact that there are two authors who are assumed to have written the work at two different periods. The first version is in a simple and abrupt format written by a Brahmin, Chinta Mani, which is attributed to being the older version. The second version is one which is written in a more ornate style by a Jain monk named Shevatambara. Apart from this basic knowledge, the actual place and time of the composition is unknown as the original manuscripts are no longer extant. The structure of the Sukhap Saptati is similar to the structure of the 1001 Nights. The base structure of the story involves the son of a merchant, Madana Vinoda, and his adulterous wife, Padmavati. The friend of the merchant, a Brahmin, tries to get Madana to go to the righteous path and gives him a talking parrot who narrates a story which enlightens Madana. Now, having been enlightened, he sets off on a voyage, leaving his wife and the parrot alone. It is here that the main narrative of the story begins. For the next 70 nights, Padmavati, spurred on by her malicious friends, attempts to take on a lover at night. But every night, the parrot tells a story, mainly focused on characters who have the wits to escape the troublesome situations they find themselves in. To Padmavati, who is always enthralled by the stories and does not meet her lover. The story ends on the 70th night when Madana returns from his voyage and Padmavati learns the error of giving into her desires wantingly. Listeners may find a somewhat similar resemblance to the 1001 Nights tale of The Husband and the Parrot. There are significant differences between this story and The Husband and the Parrot. Firstly, the merchant was known for being excessively jealous, while there is no indication that Madonna was jealous at all. Secondly, the parrot here was brought to observe the wife and report to him the ongoings of his house while he was away, rather than the purpose of bringing the main character enlightenment. The main question of whether this story had any existing influence on the 1001 Nights is extremely tenacious. The only commonalities present between the two are that the central characters within these stories, but little else can be extrapolated between the two.
Turning back on the overall examination of this collection, however, shows that much like the Katha Sarit Saghara, the Sukha Saptati comprises of both the Jataka and the Katha Sarit Saghara itself, which includes the Panchan Tantra as mentioned before. Erwin has once again pointed to another much later collection of stories. The Sukha Saptati had already come into existence in the 12th century when what could be considered the core of the 1001 Nights had already been finalized in written format. When viewing the history of the translation of the Sukha Saptati, once again it seems to have been into Persian rather than into Arabic by which it traveled through. In the 14th century, a Persian Sufi and scholar, Zialdin Nakhshabhi, translated the Sukha Saptati into Persian in 1335 CE and titled it Tuti Nama. This Persian translation shows no evidence of it traveling outside the subcontinent, for the next place it shows up is once again at the court of Akbar who had 250 miniature paintings commissioned sometime in the 1550s CE. It is this illustrated version of the Tutinama, which survives in several copies, one of which is mostly in the Cleveland Museum of Art in Ohio, USA, and the other is in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin, Ireland. This illustrated translation, unlike the Katha Sarit Saghara, seems to have traveled to the Ottoman Empire, although the exact methods and when it traveled is unclear. From the copies present in the Ottoman Empire, it was subsequently translated as the first Sanskrit work into German. The purpose of including this work as an inspiration to the 1001 Nights must once again, like the Katha Sarit Saghara, be questioned. It is clear when examining its history that the only way it seemed to have traveled westward was during the Mughal Empire and only through Persian in the 16th century, a time when we can confidently presume that the 1001 Nights core had been long solidified. The only reason that I can extrapolate from the inclusion for the Sukha Saptati in Irwin's assessment is that it includes the Jataka in its collection. If we presume that the Jataka in whatever format, be it through textual format or through verbal transfer by merchants or storytellers, had already been transmitted and incorporated into the 1001 Nights centuries prior, the result would be that there is no need to include this work. The purpose of examining the four possible subcontinent inspirations for 1001 Nights was to try to find if either the font of where the 1001 Nights originated or a point where scholars could assume that some of these collections of stories may have played an influence. I firmly believe that this influence is to be found in the Jataka and the Panchan Tantra due to the fact that there are strong resemblances to certain tales we have encountered and certain tales which we haven't. It should be noted, however, that animal fables have certain commonalities which transcend the bounds of borders and were widely disseminated either by translators or merchants who carried these stories from place to place and may have changed them from what they had heard to suit their tastes. 
The two we have examined in this episode, the Katha Sarit Saghara and the Sukha Saptati, cannot be conclusively pointed to as the inspirational source for the 1001 Nights. Their compositional history and their translation history do not point to the widespread dissemination of these stories outside of their local or even subcontinental bounds. Both were composed within the 11th and 12th centuries, when Persian, not Arabic, was considered the courtly language, and where Baghdad had ceased to be the center of the translation movement. The creation of these translations took a number of centuries, and only in the case of the Sukha Saptati do we have evidence that it traveled from the Mughal Empire to the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century or beyond. The only basis that we can even possibly see these pieces of literature as possible inspirations for the 1001 Nights is the fact that they both contain some versions of the Jataka and the Panchantantra. It is therefore my own scholarly opinion that when looking at the subcontinent for possible fonts of inspiration, there can only be the two, the Panchantantra and the Jataka. In the next special episode, we will turn to another font of possible inspiration pointed out by Robert Irwin again, the pre-Islamic Persian tales, and look further away from the local geographical range to include possible sources of inspiration from places like China and Europe. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on coffee. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please click on the link available on our many social media platforms or email us. Why not donate to our coffee to show your appreciation? Every bit helps and we thank you for your continued support. We love that our listeners love listening to us. This episode has been written, edited and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night and may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful thank you for listening